0: Thanks for listening to the Trial Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Jean-Marc Pisabia, making his triumphant return to the podcast. Jean-Marc, of course, is the founder and frontman for The Box, an incredibly successful band in the 80s with four charting albums and ten charting singles, including Must I Always Remember, My Dreams of You, La Faire de Moutier, Ordinary People, and their biggest hit, Closer Together. After the band's exhaustion in 1993 led to a dispersal of its members and a 10-year hiatus, a new Box 2.0 was formed in 2004. And if this news doesn't make you feel old, the Box is currently on their 40th anniversary tour, with Jean-Marc and the band imminently arriving in Ontario for shows at Port Hope's Capitol Theatre on September 28th, at Oakville Centre for Performing Arts on September 29th, and at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa on September 30th. For touring and ticket info, you can and should go to theboxband.com. Welcome back, John Mark, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for once again joining me. Where are you and how are you? Well, first of all, good morning to all your listeners. Where am I? I'm in
1: beautiful Mont Blanc. It's an hour and a half north of Montreal, you know, the ski resort. And I happen to be on the side of a hill with a magnificent view that overlooks
0: farmlands and that sort of thing. Just fantastic. Well, I'm jealous. That sounds fantastic. It is hard to believe it has been almost a year since you've made your debut on this podcast. How has 2023 been for you so far? And what have you been up to?
1: Well... I might have told you that before, but we don't do shows in the winter. We only start the season in April, end it in November, because it's always very difficult to predict what kind of weather we will have. And if we have to drive eight hours, say from where I live to Mississauga, uh, who knows what kind of weather we'll have. So, yeah. But we've had a decent summer, not as good as 2022, though. I don't know why exactly. Might have to do with COVID, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, 24 is looking pretty darn good if I trust my managers in Toronto and here uh, forecast for an uh, upcoming games.
0: And did you have any memorable shows over this past summer? The
1: last one, absolutely. The Rib Fest in Burlington. I mean, have you seen that venue? It's incredible. It's by the lake. There is a bizarre, eerie uh, ambiance to that place with all of these kiosks of people cooking meat there and the, the odor is absolutely fantastic and uh, uh, there was I don't know maybe eight, between eight and ten thousand people so that was just um, a, a great gig and that was the last one
0: and were you able to enjoy the rib Jean Mark before or
1: after your show after always after I, I never never commit that mistake mistake again of of eating like a like a pig before uh, uh, walking on stage.
0: You are a veteran. You know all the touring tips. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you excited to be returning to Ontario for your mini tour with stops in Port Hope, Oakville, and Ottawa? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've never played Port Hope,
1: or maybe we have in the 80s, but uh, not since 2004 uh, when the band reformed. And so I'm looking forward to that. Oakville, yes, we've done before. And Ottawa, the Brass Monkey, of course, is a classic. Excellent.
0: Well, back in the day, you had people to do all your planning. You traveled with about 18 people plus the band. You were on the road for sometimes 200 dates a year. How is touring different today in 2023? The major difference is the fact that we used to
1: tour because we had to, okay? And like you just said, 150, 160 shows per year, maybe even more than that certain years, it's just downright exhausting. And it it gets to the point where it's not fun anymore. Whereas today, we play because we want to, not because we have to. And of course, this crazy pace of the 80s is completely out the window now. We do maybe, I don't know, 25, 30 shows per year, and that's more than enough. Uh, we can enjoy family life. Uh, we all have families. And we can do whatever it is we want to do on the, on our spare time. And then on the weekends, usually on the weekends, uh, we uh, go out there somewhere and play a show, which is fantastic. And then the other thing also is that this version of the band is really full of humor. I mean, if you've seen us play live, I think you know that. Uh, when these guys walk on stage, a party starts. And uh, and they clown around, and they do all sorts of things, and so do I, by the way. And it makes the, all, the whole thing just a lot of fun. So that's, that's the main difference. Back in the
0: 80s, it was work. Today, it's fun. Excellent. Well, that's great. I had Drew Arnott from Strange Advance on that podcast not long ago, and he explained that whereas in the heyday of Strange Advance in the 80s, he had management to handle everything, but for their touring in 2023, Drew literally has to phone the venues himself. He gets out the Google Maps to try and put together a reasonable road trip. He has to figure out the logistics of getting everything and everyone moved from point X to point Y to point Z. Does this strike a chord with you? It does, although we do have a manager, Booker,
1: uh, in Ontario and one for Quebec. And that helps a lot because I am absolutely useless when it comes to organizing things. And I hate paperwork and that sort of thing. This, this is just not me. So for those reasons, we hire someone to do the booking. But that's about it because, I mean, the business back then was extremely different from what it is now. Uh, You had interviews, a bunch of interviews in a single day to be booked by people, whoever back then it was Lisa's Bitnew who took care of that, uh, who then went on to become president of BMG and then Sony. (laughs) Uh, So you can imagine that this woman had her thing together and she contributed enormously in the success of the band back in the back in the 80s. But like I said earlier, today, it's it's just a matter of going out there and playing. We don't do records anymore. I mean, we have done one in 2018, but it's really a big loss of money because, you know, internet changed everything. I don't need to tell you that story. But the, the live performances are still there. They're happening. They're fun. And so all we need really is a booker. That's it.
0: Well, Drew was also shocked at the competition for dates at venues, especially when you're trying to string together a bunch of shows in a kind of logical travel pattern. Did you experience this? Not really. Uh,
1: Maybe because we don't expect anything. I mean, if I get a phone call from our agent agent in Toronto and he says, uh, would you like to do that gig? It happens to be a Friday or a Saturday and there's nothing after that. Maybe Uh, we'll do it anyway. It's not like everything has got to be completely structured with a day before and a day after with a, a gig on the way in and another one on the way back. It's preferable, of course, as in as is the case with this trio of dates we're going to do now. But, um, and yeah, and, and sometimes gigs happen, I mean, an hour away from my house. We, we take them all. That's it. We just take them all. Uh, we don't make a fuss about it. And uh, like I said, the idea is just to make, life simple. Keep it simple and everything runs smoothly. Of course, it's a long drive to go to, let's say, Niagara Falls uh, on a Saturday and, and then drive back home to Montreal. It's a long drive, and
0: but it's worth it. It's just worth it. Well, one very positive change since touring in the 80s has been the technology and its effects on the amount of gear you need. Strange Advance used to travel with tons of keyboards, but Drew says now he literally has everything he needs on a single laptop. Have you experienced this, Jean-Marc?
1: Absolutely, of course. I mean, back in the 80s, we used to travel around, as you've mentioned, uh, with a crew of at least 12 people, if I remember well. We had a van, a 45-footer van, you know, one of those semis uh, to carry all the, ge- the, 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 the gear around. This is go- Those days are long gone. I mean, today, when you play a venue people provide with the sound system, the light system and everything. All you have to do is show up with your band gear and that's it. And the one thing that takes most room
0: is the drum kit. In fact, if that's it, everything else is like, yeah. And you started your career, of course, as a keyboardist. Is everything now kind of on this one laptop and you don't need all these wide array of different keyboards? It could be like that.
1: We chose to have well, our keyboard player chose to have a setup of keyboards because he needs uh, a very good imitation B three organ sound uh, with the Leslie. I mean, I'm I'm getting technical here, but for people who know rock music from back in the 70s, this is, it was a classic: the B three organ with the uh, with the Leslie speaker. So, if you want to have that kind of precision uh, while you play, and the physical feel also of being there, you know, behind your keyboard and having your hands on. Uh, You need something a little bit more uh, sophisticated than just a single computer with a program, a good program in it. But that's a choice you make. You can indeed go and do everything you want with a single computer,
0: a laptop. Do you have opening acts for your three Ontario stops? And do you personally get involved in kind of selecting these opening acts?
1: We don't and we do. So we don't uh, have a, a word to say about it. Uh, when it happens, and in this case, this trio, we will have an opening act. At least the two Ontario dates, Port Hope and Oakville, and it's a extraordinary band called One Ugly Cowboy, which happens to feature as a lead singer one very good looking uh, <laughs> cowgirl. Uh, hence, hence the, the title of the, the the name of the band, and uh, they will be playing with us, I think, for about an hour or forty five minutes. Uh, in at least in Port Hope Oak and Oak,
0: Oakville. I'm not sure about the Brass Monkey. And Jean-Marc, do you want to share the format for your shows? Because, of course, everyone wants to hear all of your hits. And we do them all. Usually when we do festivals, that sort of thing, we're asked
1: to do an hour, an hour, an hour and 15. So we do a single set. Of course, we make sure that all the old hits from the 80s are in there, and we play a little bit of the stuff that people know a bit less from 2015 the album that came out, no, 2005, not 2015, called Black Dog There. We have a couple of tracks on there that that are just magical to play live. But when we do soft seaters, as we will in this trio of gigs, then we split the show in two halves. In the first half, we do some more recent material that people know a little bit less. And in the second half, it's all the old hits from the 80s, one after the other. And once the party has, has struck, uh, we don't let go till the end.
0: Excellent. Well, I want to ask if are you a slave to the original recordings, i.e., do you play your songs, note for note as recorded, or have your songs evolved and kind of been reinterpreted for live performance? Some, uh,
1: some have, some not. L'Affaire du Moutier, for example, is exactly the same as it was on the record. That, by the way, is my best song ever. I, I, it's a once-in-a-career kind of song, to me anyway. And um, and so we do it exactly as it was for the record. Other songs, a little bit of, let's say. I wouldn't say interpretation, but sometimes we will change a little bit of the guitar part because it wasn't that great to begin with back in the 80s, although the song was was a good song. But usually we take it to the stage pretty much as is, pretty much as it was back then. Of course, the energy level is completely different. It always is. Any band you see, including the big things like Rolling Stones and all that, their record always sounds a little bit more tame than their live performance, which is good, which is wanted. And so it's the same thing for us. But no, we don't go out of our way to change a song because we feel like it sounds old. Now, if if we feel like it sounds old and dated, we don't play it at all. But it just so happens that all these hits that we had in the 80s, I think they just deserved their spot today. And that's the way I take it. And that's the way we've delivered it.
0: Excellent. Well, as you mentioned, La Faire de Moutier is your personal favorite song from the box. Yeah. I certainly remember the video being very striking. Why is it your favorite song? Because it
1: defied all the rules at that time of what a single to be played on the radio recommended you should do. For example, when we can it's a murder story. Everybody knows that. The record company, the first thing they told us is what you really want to put a murder story as a single on the radio. Are you out of your minds? And I said, yes, well, that's exactly what we want to do. And then the other part is it it it, it feels as if you're listening to the soundtrack of a movie uh, shot in France in like um, 1960. Uh, there was a name for that kind of movie back then. It was called Polar, which in French is a contraction of police movie and um they were usually in black and white everybody smokes cigarettes in those movies all the time and it was always a little bit gloomy and uh, you know that so i wanted to catch that atmosphere and bring it into the video and then also you have these conversations between the actors of that story for example the 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 police um, inspector and the journalists and and so on and then of course at the end the judge that comes there and 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 handles the verdict, not guilty on the basis of insanity, in French. So it's just that the concept of the song was like nothing. The simple fact that I didn't sing, I I told the story. It's not rap, but it's not singing either. Uh, But I'm telling the story into the rhythm of the song. That was also something pretty novel, And so, yeah, it's the novelty of the song that I think makes it my personal favorite. It's original in almost every aspect. It was a little bit long. But you see, once we made the video, everybody played it. And it was interesting, although not very good for marketing reasons, but it was interesting that people thought that what you saw in the video was actually parts of the movie, and they thought I was an actor. They didn't know I was the lead singer of the box because it was only our second video. And we hadn't established our image already at that time. And people thought, who are these people? They're actors? What do they do? Because in fact, I do the the police officer. My brother does the lawyer, who used to play keyboards back then, does the lawyer at the end. Our sound man, Luc Papineau, is the one who plays the journalist who says that it's, it's often that's guilty. He's the one who's done it. And so people didn't know that these guys were actually the members of the band because we didn't play our instruments, we didn't have a guitar in our hands. I hated those videos where you saw someone just play the guitar in the middle of nowhere like that, and you know, it's it made no sense to me. And so, but the video was completely extraordinary in that in that matter, in, in the way that it presented itself as a movie from which you saw some excerpts.
0: Yeah, definitely <laughs> my favorite. Well, it certainly was an extraordinary video, Jean-Marc. As you're describing it, it's coming back to me very vividly as well. You you broke the mold. You did something very unique. Yeah. If you don't mind taking us behind the curtain, so to speak, what would your actual days look like while on tour today? Maybe as an example, give us a maybe specific schedule you follow for this upcoming three-stop mini tour of Ontario. Do you start by congregating in a central place like Montreal? We don't. We used to
1: when we had a tour bus. Back in 2006, I, um, I had a tour bus. Uh, you'll remember that big black thing with the box written on it in huge letters, white letters. And so we used to congregate somewhere, as you said, and then we would all travel together in, in that tour bus to whatever destination we had. The tour bus became very old and it was being very unreliable, and we ditched it. And now, so what we do now is that we travel in three cars. And so I traveled with the uh, technician and uh, Isabelle, our backup singer, uh, Francois travels with the drummer and uh, Danielle, our bass player and the keyboard player travel together too. So it's three cars. It's a lot more flexible, I have to say, because we don't live at, you know, the drummer lives right next door to me and, uh, and Isabelle is not too far either. But uh, the bass player and, and the keyboard player are quite a bit of ways from here. And so it's better if we do it that way. However, Usually, unless we play like somewhere around Montreal, when we play in Ontario, 90% of whatever we're doing is just driving on the road. And then when we get somewhere, we usually are just minutes from sound check. So we do the sound check, then we go and grab a bite, and usually we have maybe an half hour, an hour to wait before showtime. Then we do the show, then we have a meet and greet, and then we wrap everything up, well, Our technician does for us, but, you know, we change and and go to the hotel. We're never in bed before, I'd say, one o'clock, two in the morning, which is almost the hour at at which I get up (laughs) normally when I'm here. I mean, we hit the stage at the time I regularly go to bed. (laughs) So it's a switch. It's a change. But, yeah, it's very hectic. We don't have time to do anything. We often get offered, well, for example, there is a fan of ours who has a private plane uh, somewhere around Toronto, and he's invited me to go have a ride with him in the plane. I just don't have time. We can't. We arrive somewhere, sound check, and then I get dressed, do the show, blah, blah, blah. So that's a little bit of a drag because it would be fun if we could hang around a little bit more. I remember back in the uh, smack in the middle of COVID, uh, we played two nights at the Elmo Campbell. we actually reopened the club and so we had two days to spend in Toronto at least one full day to spend in Toronto and do something else than just you know rush to get somewhere and that was really cool but it's very it it almost never happens it's always you know a run against the watch the clock and we we have to do things like tack 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 and it's uh yeah it's a little bit of a bummer But the show itself outweighs all that.
0: John Mark, you're not getting any younger. I'm not getting any younger. How physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted are you after a show in 2023 versus after a show in like 1985? Nothing has changed. And I don't know
1: why, although I have a theory. I'm 66. I'm not overweight. I'm in good health. And here's my theory. Look at Mick Jagger. Okay, he's 80 years old, if I'm not mistaken. I've seen the guy, okay, the last time that he canceled the show was because he got COVID, okay? Uh, I've seen the guy on stage on TV lately. He looks like he's 17. My theory is the following. If you have a role to play, being the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, for example, your mind sets itself to... Fulfill that role, and the body follows, okay? I will always remember my mom. She was 89. She lived in a big house. She had divorced from my father, yes, at age 89. But she did everything in that house. She kept the house. She did everything. She would sweep the floors, uh, do everything. And then at age 90, she left the house to go into a nursing home, and everything went down down downstairs from down south from that moment and i know exactly why it's because she started playing the role of a retired person in a nursing home and her body followed within about 4 years she was gone okay that was an not very funny thing to say but what i what i mean to say by that is that like i said when you have a role to play your body follows my role is to be the lead singer of the box And as long as that's in my head, the body will follow, I think.
0: I think you summarize that as mind over matter. Yeah. And you talked about the mind, you talked about the body, but for you in particular, Jean-Marc, your voice. What do you do for your voice these days to maintain it? Nothing.
1: If anything, I drink a bit too much. I smoke cigarettes. Um, I never vocalize anything. Uh, I never spend 10 minutes vocalizing I mean, I heard stories about Celine Dion, who spends like something like two hours a day. Now, of course, she has a level of singing which is completely out of this world. Certainly, I wouldn't compare myself to her. But if I knew that I had to do that sort of thing to keep going, it would really be a bummer because I hate doing homework. I really do, so I don't do anything. And somehow. It seems to just be there, and people tell me after a show, "My, you you, uh, you sing exactly, you sound exactly as you uh, uh, used to back in the 80s, and I don't know why. It's
0: just a coincidence. I don't know. It's just like that. That's excellent. That's great. And It must be very gratifying to hear that from your fans.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. They tell me things like, I mean, the one thing that I hear all the time is, oh, that reminds me of my youth. Sometimes they will even say that they have passed on the taste of our music to their kids. This gives me a a mission accomplished kind of attitude, which is uh, irreplaceable.
0: Now, the last time you were on this podcast, you provided an excellent, very detailed history of you and of the box. I'm going to jump into a few of the great fun facts, if you don't mind building on those. It was a really interesting thing. Your first professional role was as a member of Men Without Hats, but this was before safety dance. Can you please share the story of your history with Ivan Dorchuk?
1: Okay, Ivan and I were students in a French lycée in Montreal. What, what's a lycée? The lycée is a classical school, which was um, the norm in Europe, and in, particularly in France, I'd say from the 1800s up until about uh, when uh, things started changing and they wanted to revolutionize the way that schools worked. Um, and changed everything for the worse. But the lycée was the classical course, um, and uh, that school in Montreal provided that. And my dad sent us there. And since um, Ivan's parents were Ukrainian and English-speaking, and they wanted him to learn French the right way, they sent him to that school too. And so we uh, we shared a German language class together. And then we split. And we uh, haven't seen each other for a while. He did uh, communications at Concordia University. I did architecture at Montreal University. So we kind of parted ways. And then we met in a restaurant, completely by happenstance. I saw him walking out on the sidewalk. There were were huge bay windows. And I saw him walking on on the sidewalk. I was with friends. And I said, hey, Ivan. I shook my hand. And he saw me. And he walked in. And we sat down, had a coffee, and started talking. Of course, music was in both our lives. Men Without Hats was already started by by then. He had um, this um, EP called uh, Folk of the 80s. I think it was Folk of the 80s. Yes, it was. It was already out. And when he said he had this band called Men Without Hats, I said, well, that's a funny name, you know. Uh, But the box wasn't formed yet. But I was doing music with one of the gentlemen that was present, by the way, at the table with us there. And so we, we got interested. Long story short, at one point, and I was playing keyboards, at one point, Ivan needed a keyboard player uh, to do um, an Eastern Seaboard of the U.S. tour of, um, I don't remember how many dates. And he proposed that I join the band to do that. And I said, yeah. And eventually, we um, I stayed with the band for about a year. When I left the band to do the boxed, I guess I could have stayed in Men Without Hats as a second singer, a little bit like Supertrap as two singers. But I didn't think that was going to sit very well with Ivan. So, you know, without really discussing everything into detail, I I just thought I'd I'd leave the band and do the box. But I kept the same manager. And that's what changed everything. Because, as you mentioned, when I formed the box, the safety dance wasn't written yet. It was written, written just after I left. And when that song hit the charts worldwide, our first record was about ready to hit the shelves. And so you can imagine that uh, the safety dance gave a credibility to our management uh, that they didn't have before. And that really opened doors for us because here there was this huge safety dance success uh, which the bearers, i.e. our managers, uh, were getting all the credit for. And so this next band called The Box, it must be something in the same alley. Uh, so, So, like I said, it made things so much easier for us.
0: And when you go to a box concert these days, all the songs you hear are The Box, except perhaps for one cover. At one time, you were doing a cover of The Safety Dance. And we still do. Yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert.
1: Indeed, yes. And it's the only cover we do. At one point, our management in Toronto insisted that we do more covers, which we tried. And then, yeah, two things happened. Uh, at one point, people didn't know which were covers and which were original box songs. So that was bad. And then the other thing is that this band, for some reason, doesn't like to do covers. But the Safety Dance is different because it was my former band. And we do it as a tribute to, uh, the our, our like I say, our cousins in the hatless world. Uh, so, yeah, and, and it's a great track. It's absolutely great. I mean, there's no way around it. When a song starts by saying, we can dance if you want to, we can leave your friends behind because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, there are no friends of mine. I mean, come on. You got to laugh your way to the bank with a line like that, you know. So, yeah, we do, we do that one exceptionally because it's Men Without Hats because it was, uh, I was
0: part of the band before the box, but that's it. It's a great story. No other covers. Uh, another interesting piece of the box's history is the confusion around the involvement of a, another legendary singer from Montreal, Sass Jordan. Please clarify, Sass Jordan's involvement in the box, in particular, her role in the video versus in the recording for Closer Together. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: Yes, Sass Jordan stayed with us for, I think, about five years. She was our first uh, backup singer with the band when we started the box. And she stayed with us for maybe even more than five years. Maybe, yeah, maybe more. Because I think she left in 1988 or 89. Okay, the confusion comes from the fact that our third album, which came out in 1987, which contained Closer Together, which was, by the way, a commission, that song, from Lucan, uh, the society to fight against leukemia which wasn't support, supposed to be a box long it was just supposed to be a commission for that purpose uh, there was a video to be shot with the montreal canadians who had just won the stanley cup in 1986 uh, martin saint who was a prominent uh, who was at least prominent singer at the time and us and other people amongst which the sick children of saint-justine's hospital in montreal and Martine Sinclair is actually the one who sings on the record. She's the one who sings in that song. The female vocals are her. Uh, then when time came to do the video, uh, she couldn't or didn't want to uh, end up on a beach with 18 horny guys uh, in the Dominican Republic because we had to shoot that thing in the middle of the winter. And to me, it was uh, I directed that video, and it was out of the question that we did in, in the snowbanks, out of the question. So we had the idea of, Taken everybody down to Dominican Republic and shoot it there. And so, but we had a full week, uh, you know, the, the shooting itself lasted maybe a day and a half, but we had a full week because we took, you know, that kind of um, all included uh, type of forfeit to go there and, and do that. And she thought, yeah, I don't think so, you know, and so she stayed home. But Sas Jordan, the trooper that she is, because she really is a trooper, and Sylvie Dadio who was the other backup singer that we had back then, they came. They absolutely did come. And so they are the ones that you see in the video, but no, it's not Sass or CB uh, that sing. It's Saint Sinclair. There is a confusion about that, and I hope that clears it up a little bit. It does. Uh, but for everything else, for every other uh, female singing on that third record, it's either Sass or CB or both you sing, the vo- the vocals, uh, female vocals.
0: Excellent. The real story, it's been told. Yep. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Jean-Marc Bissabia, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, Chalk Circles' Chris Tate, Strange Advances' Drew Arnott, Lee Aaron, Sean Kelly, Quiet Riot's Rudy Sarzo, and Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Sean Mark, who do you remember touring with back in the 80s? The Spoons.
1: Our first Trans Canada tour was opening for The Spoons. And um, it was a fabulous experience. It went from, I believe, Toronto all the way to Victoria, if I remember well. And we played minor venues because they were happening, but they weren't, you know, this huge act. Uh, we happened to have done the same thing after that, but opening up for Chris Deberg, uh, that was a different thing because we played full arenas, I mean, from Halifax to Vancouver, and that was a great exposure for us. But I remember the Spoons because, you know, we were almost at the same place. They were a little bit in advance because they had released their first record, I think, a couple of years to four hours. And we connected. Gordon Depi and uh, Sandy Orne are just great people. That's it. And, and in fact, we have been in touch lately uh, because they come to the Classic Bowl in um, in Mississauga uh, regularly, and uh, we meet there. And um, Gordon and I are on on uh, on Facebook on Messenger. We we talk often, and uh, you know, so that that tour from back in 1981 or 82, I believe carried up until today because we still have good contacts with these uh, with these guys but after that yeah we opened up for big people like the pretenders jethro toal uh, christelberg and all that but the one tour that i remember most is is that very first one with uh, with the spoons.
0: yeah excellent. now at the height of the box's powers and at the top of the charts jean-marc what memories really stand out for you from that time
1: first time I heard one of our songs on the radio, the very first time I was in the car, uh, Sholm had said, it was Sholm FM in Montreal, they had said that they were going to play in five minutes uh, this new box single, blah, blah, blah. I was in the car, I was just shaking. I was shaking. I couldn't believe it. And then when it it came on, I thought, my God. Then the second thing was, and that song didn't have a video. The second single was Must I Always Remember. That one had a video. And that changed everything because I did have a car, but somehow maybe they were so crummy that I had to dump it uh, for uh, but I remember having to take the bus one day, the Metro, in fact, in Montreal, and I'm in the Metro and there's this, this girl there that, that she's looking at me like insistently. And then I th- I said to myself, oh, that's right. The video came out yesterday and that changed everything. I remember one time I went to have a coffee at a McDonald's on St. Catherine Street in Montreal. St. Catherine is the equivalent of Young, okay? And it had bay windows directly on the sidewalk. And I was with two friends, uh, a couple that I know. And we sat in the window to have a coffee. Someone went by the sidewalk, saw me, came inside and asked for an autograph. Someone else saw, saw us doing that, they came in. First thing you know, about five minutes later, there's a lineup at the door of the McDonald's for people to get an autograph from me. So, needless to say, I couldn't have a conversation with the people I was with, A. B, the owner of the McDonald's, or at least the manager, had to come and ask us to leave because we were, you know, just obstructing whatever business they were trying to do that night. And I thought, oh my God, really? Is that... Is that what it is? Is that what it's going to be? And uh, not that I saw it negatively, I didn't. uh, But I thought, ah, there you go.
0: That's it. Well, you go from that excitement of hearing your song for the first time in your car, when you fast forward 40 years to today and you're driving around the area of Mont Tremblant, do you still get that amazing feeling? Because there's a lot of radio stations still have 80s weekends and when they play the box songs, you still get that great feeling?
1: Oh, yes. And it happened not too long ago. That was funny. We, I was sitting at a red light here and uh, and someone pulls right beside me, pulls down their window and La Faire du Moutier is blasting in their car and he goes and he gives me the thumbs up like that. And I'm sitting there and I'm saying to myself, oh God, <laughs> this is out of a
0: movie. It's straight out of a movie. Bands explode and die for so many different reasons, but Jean-Marc, you've described the original run of the Box going from 1981 to 1993 as literally dying out due to exhaustion. Yep,
1: absolutely. The, the one thing that people might not know is that although we've been to England to record the fourth album, although we were signed with Capitol EMI in Los Angeles, although all that thing there, the box never really went to the kind of success that allowed us to uh, to do all of these things in luxury. In other words, it's not like we had a kind of private jet uh, that would take us from one gig to another, like uh, these super bands have. You know, we were always in the car, and we were always, you know, if we had to fly somewhere, it was always economy class back there. <laughs> And uh, the hotels were, you know, I wouldn't say dodgy, but uh, they weren't the, the five-star palaces, and uh, nothing like that. So what I'm trying to say is that those 12, 13 years were extremely, extremely intense, but not always in the best of uh, situations that, that, that'll make th- this intensity a little bit less um, uh, taxing. That's the right word. And then the other thing is that our management, although very efficient at promoting the band, were not very efficient at saving us. Uh, what I mean by that is that they never planned for any vacation. They never told us, okay, that's enough. Take a break. Okay, go do whatever you have to do for three months. We don't want to see you. We were always writing music. We were always doing shows. We were always in the studio. We were always 100% with the band. And some of us wanted to do other things in life. For example, I had my two children in 1989 and 1990. Uh, The band was far from over at that time. And I couldn't really reconcile family life and band life. And at the beginning, it was tough. By the way, I have to add that I'm still with the same woman 36 years later, uh, but that's because she's a saint. <laughs> that, that's why. You know, I wouldn't recommend that sort of combination to anyone. If you want to do rock music, go do rock music. Um, don't think you're going to have babies and, and think that it's very easy. It, it won't be. I, I I know I did it. So, yeah, it was just exhausting. And when I say that the band died from exhaustion, it was even more psychological exhaustion than physical. Because physically, I mean, come on, we were what, 28, 29, nobody dies of anything at that age from exhaustion. But psychologically, it was just too much of a handful. Yeah.
0: Well, over the next decade, there was relentless pressure on you to reform, get the band back together. And you asked everyone, they all said, you know what, we, we've moved on with our lives. Nobody really wanted to restart. So cool. in 2004, You didn't reform, but you kind of regenerated or reworked the band. I've called it a Box 2.0. And here we are, Jean-Marc, 40th anniversary of the Box. Congrats. Did you ever in your wildest dreams think your band would reach this milestone? No,
1: never. Especially not during that 10-year hiatus that we had between um, 11 years, I should say. Maybe even 12. Between 1993 and 2004. Yeah, it's 11 years. Because if you had told me, hey, you're going to put the box back together and you're going to hit the road again, I would have said, yeah, right. I don't think so. Um, I was doing publicity music at the time, music for films, all sorts of things like that. Money was just pouring in at last. Uh, I was working from home. I had my studio in my house, as I still do. I could see my kids go to school and come back from school, if anything, you know, usually kids, they miss their parents. With me, it was the opposite. My girls would, would tend to say, can't you, you know, just make some air for once? I was always there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but... Yeah, if you had told me at that time. But the thing is, like I said, the industry kept, you know, kept saying, you should put the back the box back together and do... And I proposed to the band, and they would have nothing to do with it. However... With all of these musical projects that I had on the site, which had nothing to do with the box the door, I met a bunch of musicians and uh, we had another project, which we did in bars in Montreal just for fun. And I told them, those guys, I said, if we, you know, took the box out of the, um, uh, out of the dust and, and put it back on, on, on its feet, would you like to do it? And they said, absolutely. And so those guys are the ones that are here now. And it's been... Since two thousand four. It's gonna be twenty years, okay? This new version of the box. It's gonna be twenty years next year. In other words, we're eight years older than the first version of the bat. That's amazing. Yeah, I have to ask so I would have never, never in my wildest dreams would I have suspected that to happen.
0: Never. Well, congrats. It's been well earned. Any touring plans outside of Canada, as I recall that you were very popular in parts of Europe.
1: Yes, indeed. In um, 1990, uh, we had a hit song there called Temptation. Unfortunately, things never materialized over there, although we had that song because the band split before we uh, could attempt doing anything over there. We were in the U.S. though, and but the problem is, see, is that to go outside and play outside, it's a bunch of technical issues that you have to deal with. Immigration, not immigration. What, what do they call it? Work permits and that sort of thing. And um, if we were offered a coherent tour uh, that included, I don't know, how many dates, and then it would be worth going through all the paperwork and all that, I would have to hire someone to do that. Uh, but it's not the case. It, we're off. We're being offered to play here and there, and um, it's not structured enough uh, for me to consider that it's worth the hassle. Uh, so we prefer to do Canada, and uh, we do it, you know, from one end to the other, and um, and that's it. I don't absolutely feel like it's a. And then the the other thing is, I'm afraid that would send us back on the lane of being on the road too often, which I don't want to do. I've been there, done that. I don't want to get back there. So. You know, some people would say, what? What's he saying? Is he stupid or what? I mean, if you're being offered to go play in Europe for two months, do it. it would be fantastic. Yeah, well, been there, done that. No, it's, um, it's not that fantastic because what you do is you jump on an airplane, you get to the airport, you go to the hotel, you go to the venue, you get back to the hotel, you get back to the airport, and you've seen nothing. You could be in Turkey and you or you could be in Argentina. It's exactly the same pattern. So um I prefer doing it on my own, at my at my own terms, on my own terms and conditions. Like you say,
0: been there, done that. Yeah. Using the box songs in commercials or for TV shows or movies. Who owns the songs and, and who makes those decisions about your catalog being used for other purposes? Okay, if they want to use a song by the box.
1: To promote whatever, a beer or anything. They have to deal with the publishers. We're getting technical here. I hope I don't bore your listeners too much, but the publishers own the rights to do exactly that, make a song public, publisher. And so we have nothing to say about that. Uh, of course, if we oppose for whatever reason, let's say that a company wants to promote something that we're against, it's not my case, but I've known I've heard of cases like that where artists wouldn't want to lend their music to a company because they thought that that company was um, somehow nefarious or whatever. So you have a word to say, but it's ultimately um, a publisher's decision. So if they're going to take a song from the box and put it somewhere, it doesn't have anything to do with me other than if I don't want it to happen. It has to do with with the publishers and they have to pay big money for that. I know because when I was doing Uh, publicity music for uh, most of Montreal's large agencies, sometimes I would be asked to contact, uh, let's say, for example, Michel Rivard from a band from Quebec called Beau Damage, which is, you know, the equivalent of Pink Floyd in England for Quebec. And uh, I called him and uh, because they wanted to have one of his songs, they were ready to pay him something like $35,000 for a 30-second commercial. And he wouldn't have anything to do with it. And uh, they wanted me to try and persuade him to do it. And he wouldn't budge. He just didn't want his music to be associated with anything commercial like that, in that way. And so maybe if that if it had been something like for breast cancer or Lucan, okay, see a cause maybe, but strictly commercial, no, he wouldn't have it. And then he was owner of his publishing rights for that particular song. But it could have been worse. It could have been that he, w- he didn't know uh, the publishing rights. And then I would have had to call the publishers and maybe get his song without his consent. That I would have felt very uncomfortable with to the point where I would have said, no, I'm not doing it. But that's, a, that's the way it works.
0: I believe that Closer Together in particular has been requested more than once for political campaigns. How do you answer requests like that? Oh, but that's different. Okay,
1: yeah. Uh, indeed, we were asked... Uh, for um, um, by both liberals and conservatives uh, to have that song in their rallies and that sort of thing, uh, a kind of theme thing to uh, be closer together. Let's make it uh, clear is, is the perfect song for that sort of thing. Uh, we opposed it. And we refused in both cases because we just didn't want to alienate ourselves from half of the population. We didn't want people who were strictly anti-conservative to say, oh, you know, we didn't want to alienate anyone. So we said no to every political aspect of using our songs uh, for that purpose. But, yes, people wanted to have our songs uh, for films, for TV series, for beer commercials, and other things. And we all, always said yes.
0: Michael Jordan said it best, jean Mark. he was asked why he doesn't come out for one political party or another. And he said, Republicans and Democrats both buy basketball shoes. Exactly. And, you know,
1: to me, if you're a musician and you answer to all of these people, don't choose one, you know, don't alienate yourself from half of the population. It's stupid.
0: It's bad for business. We're so polarized today. I do have one more business question for you, Jean-Marc. In the 80s and even the 90s, you could actually earn money from your songs being played on the radio. But today on Spotify and other streaming services, I understand there is... Not any money to be made, just the exposure. Any thoughts on the Box's catalog being available on streaming services? It it is.
1: Uh, All of our songs are. And uh, I will give you the most unsexy answer ever about this. I don't even want to know. I don't want to know. You know why? Because it's so depressing. I mean, I hear from people who are huge stars, like, I don't know, you too. And they say that in order to get five bucks, okay from royalties from Spotify your song has to have played something like 50 million times I mean what's wrong with this system it's you know back in the days yes of course we got a check from Soak and every three months uh, our royalties from our songs being played on regular radio you know and, uh, and it was it wasn't the end of the world but it was money uh, today it seems like what you get from there is peanuts it seems so I don't even want to delve into it uh, because it it's just too depressing. So I'm just putting my hand, my, my head in the sand. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, I admit. <laughs>
0: Listen, if a check shows up, you'll cash it. Absolutely. Is the box working on any new music? We aren't. Uh, because like I said a little bit
1: earlier, uh, it's an exhaustive, exhaustive... Uh, uh, um, um, it, it, it's a very demanding process. It's very expensive. And it brings back nothing. It doesn't even bring back larger audiences to our shows. Because people, let's face it, they come to see the box mainly because of the it's from the 80s. Of course, when they leave the show, uh, they're impressed. And they truly are by, by at least two new songs that they don't know that we play from our um, uh, 2005 record, uh, Black Dog There, which really are amazing to play live. Um, just a parenthesis like that. Some songs are very good and they don't work live at all. And some songs, which are maybe not so good, but they work so well live. It's, to me, it's still a mystery how that works, but it's the case that happens. Those two songs, I must admit, are very good anyway, but they happen to be, they just work like hell when we play them live. So yeah, people come out of our show and they, you know, they're, they're, they might be inclined to go buy the other records just because of what they saw during the show. But making a new album will not bring you any benefit. Other than that, maybe to please yourself and to please a very hardcore fan base. But that's about it. It's very expensive.
0: As we wrap up, Sean Mark, where can we best follow you and where can we best follow the band?
1: On Facebook, in my case. On Facebook, because I and by the way, not under the box, but under my full name, uh, because I have five thousand friends on that page, um, and everything I say about the box, when I do say anything about the box, is on my Facebook page. So if people want to know what I'm up to, that's it. As for the band, it's the the site itself, which you have mentioned at the beginning of the show. Which is the box band? Don't forget to put the band there because you're going to see a lot of boxes, a lot of cardboard, but nothing like us. Uh, so the boxband.com and uh, the dates are there. Whatever merch is uh, available is there. You know the news, some videos, that sort of thing.
0: Well, that's my favorite part. Your public service announcement that you must put in the full the box band or you'll otherwise get tons of cardboard, is uh, a great public (laughs) service announcement. (laughs) There you go. So a final reminder that Jean-Marc and The Box will be playing at Port Hope's Capital Theatre on September 28th, at Oakville's Centre for Performing Arts on September 29th, and at the Brass Monkey in Ottawa on September 30th. For touring and ticket info, you can and should go to theboxband.com. Jean-Marc, great catching up with you. I want to thank you again for your time. And I want to wish you an amazing visit back to Ontario. It was my pleasure being here.
1: Again, have a great day to your uh, audience and have a great day yourself.
0: Thank you very much. And to the listeners, on behalf of Jean-Marc Bisappia, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast.